Wrapping up our series on the Sermon on the Mount with the last part of, well, the middle part of chapter 6, which is the Lord's Prayer. Um, so we're going to spend six weeks talking about the Lord's Prayer, which is going to sound like a lot because it's not that long, right? But it's very, very dense. And so we're going to take some time to look through that. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. Luke has a different version of the Lord's Prayer. And so if you have ever gone to like a funeral at, say, a Methodist church or a Catholic church or something, and they've said something different, it's because they're getting their words from a different gospel than we are, okay? So we're all just, we just picked a different path. <laughs> they're both in the Bible. But we're going to look at Matthew's versions of the Lord's Prayer, which is a little different than maybe what we know off the top of our heads. Um, and so that's going to be the next six weeks or so. We're going to look at how this prayer that we have memorized, that has been part of the fabric of our lives, is rooted in, in Jesus' theology, what Jesus has for us to hear, the rest of the gospel message. Each phrase has an importance. It's like a summary of what Jesus says throughout the rest of Matthew. And so that's what we're going to talk about. In other words, I want you to make sure that you understand why we pray this prayer every week. I don't want you to come to worship and just say stuff, right? I want you to come to worship and be able to say that I know why I'm saying this. I know what this means. And the reason that's important, I think, is because um, I have had the opportunity over my life to visit with people who have lost their memory, who have lost memories of loved ones, lost memories of other things. And the last thing that people always remember, every time, and it always strikes me, is two things. They always remember the Lord's Prayer. I can start it off. I say our Father, and people who do not remember their names can say it. And usually the doxology, or a hymn, their favorite hymn, whatever it is, right? That's the last thing that often goes for people who they lose their memory. And so I want to make sure that if that's going to be our last memory, we know what it is that God is speaking to us. So this week we're going to look at the phrase, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Good job. <laughs> right? Okay. So we're going to translate this into to modern English to see if that helps us a little bit. Um, so I've seen the Greek of Matthew's text translated in a couple ways, but mostly it's translated this way. Our Father, who is all around us, help us make your name holy. Which is probably not a way you've ever said this line in your entire life, right? So we're going to take this a little bit backwards, and we're going to start with the words... Hallowed. The pop quiz, what does the word hallowed mean? Holy, yes, right. Hallowed means holy. When do we hear, when do we hear the word hallowed in our lives? In the Lord's Prayer, where else? Halloween. <laughs> yeah. What's holy about Halloween? It's not Halloween that's holy, it's the next day that's holy, right? It's All Saints Day. Yeah. And there's one other place where sometimes we'll talk about something being hallowed. Sacred places, usually cemeteries. This is a hallowed ground, right? And so to make something hallowed, hallowing God's name, just means that we are to make it holy. That we are asking God to help us to make God's name holy. And... Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. The word holy in Latin is sanctus, which, we mean, which is the word we use to mean sanctify. So when you sanctify something, you're making it holy. And so what does God ask? What are we asking God to do in this passage? 
We're asking God to help us make God's name holy. Now, God is perfectly capable of making God's name holy, right? God declared God's name at, at the burning bush and told us what God's name was and said, keep my name, make it holy. And we've done a pretty good job of tramping on that for about 3,000 years, right? It's a truth that we have to acknowledge that God's name does not have a very good reputation in our society right now. And most of that's our fault. I saw a um, poll the other day, a survey that they had done of folks who no longer were affiliated with the church. And over 30% of them had said that they don't go to church because the church had done damage in some way to them, had broken them. And I think we have to acknowledge that in a lot of ways, in some ways, the way that we behave as Christians has done that to them. That we have not made God's name holy, that we have as Christians often been more exclusionary, more damaging, more distrusting, more capable of making people dislike God than anything else. And you may say, like, well, that's not me. I don't do that. But if you're a Christian, then you share this Christianity with all the other folks who also claim God's name. And so we first have to acknowledge that we do not always make God's name as holy as we could. That we have a responsibility to change the narrative around God's name. So that's the first part. So I'm going to move backwards again. The next part, the middle part is, our Father who art in heaven... Right, so where's heaven? Up there in the sky? Okay. Where else could heaven be? On earth. Yeah. We get to that later in the prayers. We'll talk about that more later in the prayers. So I want to tell you this. So the ancient Hebrews viewed the world this way, that there was water, and then there was a giant land mass in the middle of it, which we all lived on, and then above that was a giant dome. And inside of the dome was the sun and the moon and the stars. And then above the dome was the waters of the heavens. And every once in a while, the dome would crack, and that's how it would rain. Right? Through the dome. This is the ancient Hebrews. We don't believe this anymore because we have science. But <laughs> that's what they believed, right? And so they would talk about God being in heaven. And what they meant was above the dome, right? Except for I've learned this week that the word that Matthew uses is not heaven. The word Matthew uses is the heavens. So where are the heavens if we're talking about plural heavens? Does that mean there's more than one? Where are the heavens, right? Still up? Okay. So I looked, at, I looked into this some more. And so whenever we hear the word heavens in, Jude, in Jewish thought, they're talking about all of the stuff between the ground and the giant dome in the sky. So everything from the ground to the sky. So where are the heavens? All around us. And the air that we breathe every day. And so we're praying in this prayer not to some God who's in the distant outside world above the dome somewhere sitting in a seat judging people. We're talking about the God who is here on earth in the air we breathe around us and inside us and through us and that means that God is not just with you, or God is not just with people who have gone to heaven, and God is not just with me, but God is with everyone who breathes on the earth. 
which takes us back to the most important word of this prayer, our. At one of my first churches, I was praying the Lord's Prayer, or the praying the prayer of the people, and I, would, I went right through the Lord's Prayer, right? I was like, and now we all pray the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And nobody could catch up with me, right? So, <laughs> so somebody came up to me after worship and said, You know, my favorite word in this prayer is our. So can you stop so that I can pray the word our with you? And I wonder how many times we've thought about that, really. That the word our means everyone's. It means yours and mine. It means Joe's and mine's. It means Eric's and mine's. It means people who are watching online and mine. It means people who don't care about God and mine. Our Father, everyone's Father, all of us. Jesus begins his message to us by saying, when you pray, remember that you are not the only one. That you are not alone in this battle. You are not alone in whatever your prayer is going to be. That you are praying with all of the people who say the name Father. Jesus' message at the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of teaching his people how to pray, is that scripture, that God, that the gospel includes everyone. All of the people who are created by God. Everyone who has a heart that beats. Everyone that has a heart that needs oxygen that we breathe, the God that is in the air that we breathe, our Father who is made holy when we remember that we start this prayer with our. I love that picture by Da Vinci of the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. You know what I'm talking about? Where all of the disciples are improbably sitting on one side of the table. <laughs> right, it's like a buffet line that nobody gets up from. Why are they all? Da Vinci was a good artist. I think he could have done them in the round, right? Why are they all on one side of the table? And why, while we're at it, do they look like 16th century Italians and not first century Jews? I've always wondered that, right? So I don't love it for its historical or biblical accuracy. What I love is the way that it looks like a party, right? They're spilling wine on each other. They're throwing bread at each other. There's like six people reaching for the bread basket in the middle of the table, right? This is a human Jesus who has included some nasty characters around this table who don't have good table manners, who didn't politely ask for the bread basket to be passed to them. They just reached over their friend and grabbed it, right? You can see the celebration of this community in the painting. But I also have problems with this painting. The table, the one by da Vinci, doesn't look like Jesus' table would look. It's not big enough. It's not big enough for all the people that Jesus would have at his table. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he collected people. That's what he did. After that brief moment of temptation in the desert, Jesus immediately went and gathered people to be with him. They were people who were outcasts, who were not considered to be important by society. He collected sinners. He collected people of all kinds. And so what da Vinci's table is missing is people like Nicodemus, the rabbi, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Where is the woman who was married seven times and who Jesus extended a hand to? Where is the woman who had the Syrophoenician woman who took Jesus to task for not being inclusive enough at his table. Where is the man who was born blind in the pool of Siloam that Jesus healed? Where are the four friends who helped heal the man's soul by carrying him on a blanket to Jesus? This table that da Vinci paints 
does not include all of Jesus' community. And I think it limits our vision of who God invites in. Where are the women at Jesus' table? We know Mary was there. We know two Marys were there. We know three Marys were there, right? Where are they in da Vinci's painting? Those men did not cook dinner for themselves. And also, while we're at it, why are they sitting in chairs? Because they didn't sit in chairs. And why is the table one-sided? Okay, so I don't love the da Vinci painting. Um, and I've got a lot of problems with the da Vinci painting. And the problem is that what it doesn't show is the messiness of Jesus' kingdom. The way that everybody who prays our Father, everyone who breathes air is invited to the table. The place where Jesus sat at his last supper was not 12 dudes with the same haircut, right? It was Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slaves and free people who were sitting together at table with Jesus who opened dinner that night saying, Our Father. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, collected people of all stations, all personalities, all talents, all opinions and thoughts and hearts and minds. Peter and James the fisherman, Matthew the tax collector, Bartholomew the farmer, he welcomed into his home friends and enemies, and he made room for the faithful. He even made room for the one who betrayed him. And we cannot walk in the steps of God if we are excluding people from our table. And there are all kinds of reasons our broken and simple hearts seek to keep people out and keep others away. And we do it with words which are hurtful and harmful. And we do it with actions that are exclusionary. And we do it when we fail to offer others a glimpse of the world that sees it as our Father's world. There's a ragtag bunch of folks hanging out with Jesus, and all of them he taught to say, Our Father. We make God's name holy by remembering that we all pray to our Father, every one of us. And Jesus offers a radical and inclusive prayer to everyone. Our ascension has identified one of our core values as a church to be an inclusive and welcoming environment. That one of the things we want to do is be a place where everybody feels like they have a seat at the table. One of those places in the world, the only place maybe in our world where you can sit next to somebody that you disagree with but still extend a hand of love. And as we seek to become more welcoming, more empowering, more inclusive, we continue to pray this prayer every week to remind ourselves that when we do that, when we make room at our tables, when we try to look more like God's table, we are living into the prayer that we pray. Including others often requires sacrifice. You do have to move your chair over. You do have to pick up your silverware and your napkin and your cup and make room for that person at the table. You may have to give up your position at the table where you always sat. And in order to give somebody else a seat, you may have to be the one who stands up and offers to go to the next spot on the table. But we all know what it feels like to be the one standing outside of the table with nowhere to sit. We all know that feeling. And we don't have to be that way. Our table is big enough for everyone 
Jesus is big enough for everyone. Jesus' table is way longer than the painting suggests it to be. And everyone has room at the table, but you may have to move your cup. But I bet if you do that, if you put a seat at the table next to you, if you invite the stranger in, if you allow that space, if you say, I love you no matter what the external parts of you may say, then I bet you, when you have a conversation with that person, it's going to turn out that you actually don't have as much disagreement as you thought. That you are more capable to love them than you thought. When you have a conversation with these people, you may find that the caricature you held of them in your head is not as true as you thought. And that you can extend a hand of love to them. That they can sit at your table and that you may actually like it. That you may enjoy having somebody who's not so much like you at the table. And so Jesus, who begins by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, our Father who is in us and around us and through us welcomes you to the table, and that I always have room for one more person at this table, even Judas, even you. How can we do less than that? Amen.